Israelites were now living in exile in Babylon, far away from home. The Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar, selected a group of the most healthy, educated Israelite men to study the Babylonian language and culture for three years, then put them to work in his royal court. In this group, there were three men named Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They served the king faithfully, and the king placed them in powerful positions. Nebuchadnezzar wanted his people to worship him, so he built a 90-foot-tall gold statue of himself and commanded everyone in Babylon to worship it. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had committed themselves to only worshiping God. So when everyone else in Babylon bowed and worshipped to the statue, the three men stayed standing. Nebuchadnezzar was furious and sentenced them to be thrown into a fiery furnace and burned alive. The king ordered the furnace to be turned up to seven times hotter than usual, so hot that even the guards who threw them into it were killed. Once the three men were inside, the king jumped up and asked his advisors, weren't there three men we threw in? I now see four men, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. The king ordered the men to come out. When they did, everyone was amazed. Not only were they still alive, but they were in perfect condition. Not a hair on their heads had been burned. Once again, the king was impressed, and not only let the men go, but promoted them. Years later, a new king of Babylon named Darius came on the scene. A friend of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego named Daniel, who was also an Israelite, was so well-liked by the new king that the other leaders in Babylon became jealous and hatched a plot to get rid of him. They tricked King Darius into signing a law that said Darius himself was a god and should be the only god anyone should worship for the next 30 days. Daniel heard about the law, but chose not to follow it. He went into an upstairs room in his home and looked out the windows facing toward Jerusalem, and he prayed to God three times a day. When the Babylonian leaders saw Daniel praying, they told King Darius, who was now forced to punish Daniel. He was arrested and thrown into a den full of lions overnight. In the morning, the den was opened, and Daniel was not only alive, there was not a scratch on him. Years later, after the Israelites had all been living in exile for 70 years, the Babylonians were overtaken by Persia, and the Israelites were allowed to return back to Jerusalem. They were going home. Those videos are so great, aren't they? I'm always amazed at artists. And I know we have a bunch of you guys in here, and we need to get you all together and paint some stuff and do some more creative work. Well, my name is Danny. I am the director of community life here at Crosspoint. And that means a lot of different things. But mainly, my heart is that I would help us get connected. We have a ton of different discipleship pathways and amazing things that God does here. And one of my roles is to help connect you to those places. So if you don't, if I don't know you, I would like to know you. If you're new here, I invite you to stop by our guest central. We would love to get to know you. <clears throat> but this morning, if you have your Bibles, turn to Daniel chapter 6. And as you're turning there, I want to set up a couple things. We're in exile. We just watched this amazing video. And, and what's happened here is now that 
The Israelites have now been taken out of their land, if we're following in the story. And the northern tribes got taken out in about 722 BC by the Assyrians. And then just recently, Judah, the bottom two tribes, get taken by Babylon in 586. So now they're all out of the land. And I want to just establish a few things before we jump into Daniel. Otherwise, I don't think we're going to be able to understand what's really happening here with exile. We can read over it really quickly. And we're just like, oh yeah, they got exiled. That must have stunk. And we move on. I want you to imagine this for a second. Think about the promises that God gave to Abraham and his descendants. I want you to think about Moses leading the people from Egypt toward this land. The land that Joshua helped the Israelites to conquer. The land that David fought for to expand and protect. All that land is now not theirs. Can you imagine how that would feel? Their temple has been destroyed. The people have been displaced. People have been killed. Families separated. If you want to understand this a little bit more, I want to really encourage you to read Psalm 137. It'll really give you a picture into what it might have felt like. Because I think sometimes, and I myself will gloss over this like it's no big deal. But imagine if somebody came into our country, took over, and it took a lot of us out of it. How that might feel. And I want to establish the second thing, which is this. It's not the Babylonians who exiled the Israelites. It's God. God exiled his own people. And he used these foreign nations to do this. And if you don't believe me, I'll give you a verse just to prove it. Ezra 5.12. But because of our ancestors, because they angered the God of heaven, he gave them into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar the Chaldean, king of Babylon, who destroyed this temple and deported the people to Babylon. We have to understand God exiled his people. And if you are like me, that should make you go, uh, what do we do with that? There's tension there. We have to deal with a God who would kick his own people out of the country that he gave them. Are we missing something? How does this fit into God's story? What do we do with that? And I would suggest that God did exactly what he said he was going to do. We always talk about God fulfilling his words, and we like it when it's a really good word. We don't like it when it's not as much of like a good word for us. And if we had time, we could really go through this. But in Leviticus 26, verses 27 to 35, God warns the people in the law of exactly what will happen to them. If, if they don't honor him, if they don't live the way he's asked them to live, if they don't treat people the way that he wants them to treat them, he tells them exactly what is going to happen. And it's, it's, it's to the T what happens in this exile. And at the end of it, he says this, I will scatter you among the nations and draw out my sword to pursue you. Your land will be laid waste and your cities will lie in ruins. God did exactly what he said he was going to do. And unfortunately, that's a promise. It's not the kind you put on your refrigerator, right? It's not the promise you have on your mirror when you're getting ready uh, for the day and you want to get pumped. This isn't like, a, I know the plans for you, says the Lord, to prosper you. This is, hey, you should remember this. And the Israelites forgot this. 
And I say all that because it's critical that we understand that God's the one that exiled his people. See, the exile is not proof that God failed, but that Israel was disobedient. God has not messed up here. God's not like, oh man, that didn't work out. Shoot, I got to like figure things out. That's not what's happened here. God has not failed. Israel has been disobedient. And here's what's really, really cool. God has disciplined his people. He's exiled them, but he has not abandoned them. God hasn't sent them out and said, good luck. Man, you guys are a pain. I mean, I don't think God would say that. Maybe he would. We think that about our family and kids sometimes, right? But God, God sends them out, but he says, hey, I'm still going to be with you. God never breaks his covenant, right? It's like the things we just witnessed here, which was absolutely beautiful. God will never stop loving every person that was up there. And God will never stop loving any one of you guys. Ever. Even if you stop loving him. He will never stop. So God is with them in Babylon, which is awesome. Second thing, really the third thing before we get into Daniel. So God exiles his people. What are they supposed to do there? Like, what do we do? We're in Babylon, right? Like, what, how long are we going to be here? What are we supposed to do? Well, I'm glad you asked that question, Danny. In Jeremiah 29, 4 through 7, God tells them exactly what they're supposed to do. And this will be on the screen. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters marriage so that they too may have sons. There's a lot of sons and daughters and stuff happening here. Increase in number. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Babylon. Pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers... You too will prosper. So here's what God tells them. Hey, go, go build a house. Don't rent. Buy a home. Invest in the community. Plant gardens, fields. Work. Do stuff. Marry. Build your family. Seek the good of Babylon. That's a little bit harder, right? Pray to the Lord for Babylon. That's even more uncomfortable. God gives these commands. And if we really had time, we could go all into this interesting stuff. But in Daniel chapter 9, what we know is this. Daniel would have read this text. In Daniel, Daniel chapter 9, verse 2, Daniel references reading the scroll of Jeremiah. And he knows that they're going to be in Babylon for 70 years. And that little piece of information comes exactly from Jeremiah chapter 29. Daniel would have read this. He would have known what God asked them to do. What I want to suggest here as we go through Daniel chapter 6 is that Daniel 6 is Daniel living out the command that God gives in Jeremiah 29 to seek the good of Babylon, to have families, to work hard. He's living out what he's being called to do in exile. Because the question for all these exiles is this, are they going to live for God in exile? They, they didn't do a very good job living for God in the land. Will they live for him in exile? Or put it another way, will they trust the story of God in their lives? We've been walking through this, right? We see 
these amazing people through, this, through the narrative of Scripture who start to trust God, Abraham and Moses. And they're not without fault, but they're trusting that God somehow knows what he's doing. Will these exiles trust that God knows what he's doing? Okay, Daniel chapter 6. We're going to read verses 1 through 3. Page 809. It pleased Darius, Darius is the king, to appoint 120 satraps, those are like governors, it's a really funny word though, to rule throughout the kingdom with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Okay, so here's what we got going. We got a king, we got three administrators, and 120 satraps. We got a classic pyramid scheme, right? That's what's happening here. And the three administrators are over the 120, and then the three report directly to the king. Pretty, pretty similar, pretty easy to kind of understand. Daniel's one of those three. Now remember, Daniel's an Israelite. He's not Babylonian. Now he may look like a Babylonian because they had to learn the language and they probably have the same haircuts and wear the same clothes, but he's very much an Israelite. And what we see here, the very first thing we see, which I think is really important, is that Daniel is working hard. Like, Daniel cares about his job. He's working hard. He's not just saying nice things like, hey, can I pray for you, which is great. He's actually showing what he believes by the way that he works. His job matters. And he's prospering because of that. He's seeking the good of Babylon through the work that he does, which is exactly what Jeremiah told him to do. He saw his role in Babylon as a way to point people to the one true God. Uh, There's a lady, Dorothy Sayers. She was a Christian writer, poet in the early 20th century. She says this, and it's great. The only Christian work is good work well done. If we don't do good work... I don't know that we're going to be much of a witness for Jesus. The way that we work, the jobs that we have, they matter. We can honor God in the way that we work. And what we see here in Daniel is Daniel's working so hard, he's exceptional, he's distinguished, and the king wants to make him second in command of the entire kingdom. Like, this is crazy. Second in command. And if we're a good Jew reading this, as the original audience would have been, that should make you think of somebody else. It reminds me of Joseph. And Joseph and Daniel are really similar. They both live in exile. They're both really gifted. They can interpret dreams. They rise to power in a foreign nation. And they also have a lot of ups and downs. I mean, these are really fascinating stories. And Daniel would have known the story of Joseph. He could have been encouraged by the story of Joseph. He could have said, God, are you doing something like that in my own life? Can I trust you in the way that Joseph trusted you? Could I possibly do that because for Daniel to seek the good of Babylon or like Joseph to work hard for the Pharaoh sounds really easy you're like yeah just just do your work man but it's not think about seeking the good of someone who has exported your people from your country who separated families who tore down the temple to your God This is not an easy thing to do. Think about this. Have any of you guys ever had a boss that you disliked? (laughs) It'd be really funny if your boss is sitting here. 
right? Um, think, about, think about the worst boss you've had. It, how, I mean, man, so many things come to mind for me. Um, not here at all. Um, that really just every day at work was difficult. Could you seek that boss is good? Could you work hard for that person, for the Lord? Or maybe you're a high schooler and there's someone who's in your class who drives you nuts and they bother you and they torment you. Could you seek their good? Or maybe you're younger, like my boys here, and you have a brother or a sister that just drives you crazy. Could you seek their good? Even when it's difficult. This is what Daniel's attempting to do. He's seeking to do this. And just like the story of Joseph, Daniel's journey has its ups and downs. So we're going to keep reading. Verses 4 through 9. At this, so when they learn that Daniel is supposed to get a big promotion, the administrators and the satraps, they try to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs. But they can't do it. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Like I said, Daniel is working very hard. Finally, these men said, hey, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. They're like, ah, we got to go after how he worships. So then they concoct this plan. Verse 6, so the administrators and the satraps went as a group to the king and said, my, uh, my king Darius, live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, everybody, have all agreed, probably except for Daniel, that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or human being during the next 30 days except you, your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, your majesty, issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing. There are consequences for Daniel's really distinguished and really good work in exile. See, seeking the, the good of Babylon makes the king really happy. The king's making money. The king's doing good. He's like, I'm going to promote this guy. But if you've worked in an office, sometimes when somebody gets a promotion, everybody else kind of like hates them. I don't know. People, we're weird, right? We just get jealous and we don't want other people to make more money than us and all this kind of things. Well, that happens here. Everyone else is mad. And this is the moment in the story where it changes. Everything's really good. And we hit that moment where the conflict starts. And this is it. Daniel's integrity, his hard work, his dedication. They put a target on his back. Do I have any Survivor fans in here? The show Survivor. Couple? Not as many as I thought. Oh, I got two hands over here. We're going to count that as 12. Okay, so probably the last, last six months... Uh, my wife and I, Kayla, started watching Survivor. And it happened like this. I know everyone experiences this. You finish a show, whatever you're watching. We don't have to talk about our shows. It's cool. You're watching Netflix, you finish a show, and you're like, you're scrolling through Netflix or Hulu, and you're looking for a show. And it's that feeling of like, you can't find anything that looks good to watch. And you're thinking, I should probably read a book or have a good conversation with my spouse. But you're like, I just want to watch a movie or something. And so you're just trying shows. So we ended up on Survivor. You guys didn't need to hear all that. And Survivor's fascinating. Apparently it's been on for a really long time. And 
it's basically made up of a social game and challenges, and you're trying to get to the very end, okay? Oh, there's the picture. So this is Jeff, whatever his last name is. And if you're really smart and you're really gifted and you're really good at challenges, then you become public enemy number one because you become a threat to win the entire game. So if you're too good and you're too smart and you're too happy, you're done, right? And they want to put your fire out. He wants to say, the tribe has spoken, right? We're gone. So what these people do, when I read this story, I'm thinking of, of Survivor. I'm thinking they all get together because they want to blindside Daniel. They all have this big meeting. It doesn't seem like Daniel's invited to the meeting somehow. They come up with this plan and they want to blindside him. And the plan is interesting. It revolves around worship. The whole plan to deceive the king and Daniel is based on the fact that they know that Daniel is faithful. Isn't that interesting? It's not a plot that's based on Daniel doing something wrong. It's a plot that's based on him doing right by his God. It's actually a compliment to Daniel. I'm not sure if he would have taken it that way, but it really is a compliment. And the comment is this, hey, nobody gets to worship anybody else for 30 days. Now, this is a culture that are polytheists. They worship tons of gods. They worship all the gods. They love all the gods. And a king in this culture, as we've talked about in the past, is connected to the divine. So it wouldn't be weird for them to say, hey, we're only going to worship King Darius for 30 days. And they set this whole thing up because the king's not really going to turn this down. He's going to have his entire kingdom worshiping him. I mean, like, they appeal to his pride, his selfishness. They make him an offer that he can't refuse. He can't really say no to this, right? As the king, that would be strange. So they set this thing up, and they know he can't go back on this. Listen, these governors, they're smart. They got to their role for a reason. These guys know what they're doing. They're setting up a really, really good blind side. They know that the king likes Daniel, and they know that he's not going to be able to go back on his word. So they set this whole sting up. I mean, they really should make a movie out of this. Verse 10. So it says, how does Daniel respond? Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows were open toward Jerusalem three times a day. He got down on his knees and he prayed, listen, giving thanks to his God just as he had done before. Daniel responds by continuing to pray. He responds by continuing to worship God. He, can, he, he responds by doing the same thing that he's been doing this whole time. Daniel did not start praying when the decree was made. He continued the habit of prayer that he already had. Does that make sense? It's not like this event happened. He's like, oh my gosh, I should start praying. Which, if that happens, you should still pray. I mean, that's a good decision to make. Daniel, this thing happens. Daniel's been praying. So this event happens, and you know what he does? He just keeps praying. Because that's what he does. Daniel's been following God daily. He's living for God in his work. He's praying. And what I want to suggest is that Daniel's doing two things. Uh, I'm taking this from a, a guy named Samuel Wells in a book. And he talks about essentially effort and habit. Right? So effort is the kind of things we do every day. Right? It, it's eating, it's, it's maybe I'm trying to eat right, maybe I'm exercising. It's these things that you do on a daily basis that you're building towards something, right? Could be, could be anything. Habit is the thing that's formed by doing that thing consistently. Does that make sense a little bit? 
It's formed by that thing. Daniel prays in this moment because he's trained himself to pray every day. He doesn't have to make a big decision. That decision was made a long time ago when he formed this habit. This guy Samuel Wells says this, In every moral situation, the real decisions are ones that have been made some time before. Daniel's been doing this thing continually. I'll give you an example. I think music makes sense to me like this. So I play guitar. I love guitar. I started playing guitar when I was probably 12-ish, middle school. We won't get into all that, but I started playing guitar. And I remember looking uh, at these guitar players, listening to music, listening to Jimmy Page and Jimi Hendrix and these amazing Van Halen who just start where they're shredding, right? And you're like, how do they do that? And as a kid, you're like, I just want to do that. And they call that soloing in guitar. And it looks like they've just been possessed by some rock god and they're just, right, they're just going to town. And uh, there's not a rock god. Uh, <laughs> I just want to be super clear. There's the rock of ages, okay? But I just, I don't want to get any weird emails or something. Um, so I'm like, I want to do that. Like, it just looks like somehow magically they can do this thing. Something comes over them and it's amazing. And what I've learned now after playing guitar for a long time, and now knowing how to do those kinds of things, I realize what's actually happening is years of scales, years of learning a riff, learns of years of listening to stuff, repeating the same phrase. I'll sit with my guitar, do 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 and slowly, faster, 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 building an effort that leads to a habit that when I can pick up my guitar now, my hands can like do things I'm not thinking about. But that was built on years of doing it every day. Daniel has a habit of prayer, and he prays in this really important space because he's been doing it continually. And the king and the other governors know that he prays like that. They're building this whole sting on the fact that he has integrity towards his God. We're going to continue the story. There's consequences for Daniel's obedience, like I said. He gets busted praying. They, they kind of are all watching him pray. And we're not going to read it all, but essentially they go tattle, all the governors, they go tattle to the king. Hey, king, didn't you say this? Right? I mean, we've seen this with like your kids. Hey, dad, didn't you say we were supposed to take the trash cans in? Well, why it's not doing it, right? They go do this to the king. They go kind of tattle. They get him in trouble. The king has to throw Daniel into the lion's den. Now, why they even have a lion's den? I mean, I don't, so many questions. We're not even going to go there. Okay. So he's going to get thrown into the lion's den. Listen, this passage is so fascinating. We could go off on so many trails. I'm stopping myself from doing this. But right before the king is going to throw him in, at verse 16, he says this. So the king gave the order. They brought Daniel and they threw him into the lion's den. But not before the king says this to Daniel. May your God whom you serve continually rescue you. The king is for Daniel. I mean, he's pumped. And he's like, hey, that God that you've been praying to every day and living for every day, I hope that he rescues you. I hope that he rescues you. The text is trying to bring out this thing that Daniel's been living consistently. He's been living with integrity. See, integrity is the good one does continually and consistently regardless of our environment. So whether you're in the promised land or whether you're in exile is irrelevant. 
Can we live the way that God is asking us to live? We see Daniel doing that here. And what's going to happen is that Daniel is going to get thrown into this den, which is quite similar to the pit that Joseph gets thrown into, which is really interesting and connected to this tomb that Jesus is going to be in later on in the story. And a stone is going to get rolled on the top of this pit, which is interesting. The stone gets rolled on to make it permanent. And it says that he puts a signet on there so that no one gets to touch this thing. So here's what's going to If Daniel lives, it's for one of two reasons, okay? Here's the first reason Daniel lives. Unbeknownst to anybody else, Daniel has a secret gift and he's a lion tamer. Daniel's a lion tamer. Nobody knew it. He's been doing this as a side gig. He's got a side hustle. He's a lion tamer. I'd like to think that's true. The text isn't going to support me. The second thing is that Daniel's God intervenes. Those are the only two options here. Really, there's only one option because he's not a lion tamer. Oh, here we got a couple of pictures. Trying to keep, you know, I know we got kids and stuff in here. Okay, so here's a potential view of what it was like. Now, I love this because somehow Daniel managed to get his scrolls into the den with him and a candle. So he's like, in case I don't get eaten, I want to do some reading. He's probably reading the scroll of Jeremiah, which we talked about. There's another picture too. What's the other one? This one's great. Daniel in the lion's den. This is the king. This is not quite what I had in mind. He's riding on the, t- <laughs> He's riding on the back of it. I don't know. I thought that was funny. Now, the text doesn't support that either. But hey, if God can do anything, I'm sure Daniel could have ridden on the back of the lion. That's what I think. So kind of moving on. He's in the lion's den. Whatever that looks like, we don't know. He's not a lion tamer. I just want to be really clear about that. Verse 19. How's this thing going to turn out? Let's find out. At first light of dawn, the king, the king got up and he hurried to the lion's den. And he, when he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice. The king is really just worried about this whole thing. Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, that's a repeated phrase, we should pay attention to that, been able to rescue you from the lions? And Daniel answered, and if he answers, obviously he's, he's alive. May the king live forever. My God sent his angel and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight nor have I done any wrong before you, your majesty. <clears throat> Darius calls God, says, references Daniel's God as the living God. And he's asking Daniel, hey, has your God done what you say he can do? You say he can do these things. Can he actually show up? Because the gods of the Babylonians they can't act on their own behalf. They have no power to act on their own. They can only act if like they're the person worshiping that moves their little statue to the left or the right. They have no power in of themselves. Do you guys remember the story of Elijah and the prophets of, of Baal? When they have the epic fire battle and, and they put the sacrifice and whoever's God sends fire is going to win the battle and, and the prophets of Baal are dancing around, you know, and they're cutting themselves and Elijah's making fun of them. And what happens? Nothing. Their gods don't show up. Why? Their gods aren't real. Their gods have no power to act on their own behalf. Yahweh, the God of Israel, can act on his own behalf. 
And he does it by shutting the mouths of the lions. And Daniel attributes this to him being blameless. Now, it's not blameless in the sight of the king. It's that he's blameless before God. And I, I want to be clear. This doesn't mean Daniel was perfect. We're not talking about perfection. He was living with integrity toward God. And God decided to rescue him from the mouths of the lions. See, Daniel's deliverance is connected to how he lived before God, not other people's opinions of him. Exile is about how are you living for God in a foreign land. It's not about where you live. It's about who you are living for. Daniel was living for his God in exile. And at the end of this story, I've just been blown away reading this the last week or so. It's absolutely incredible. Verse 25. So, so Daniel lives, right? This is with the king. This is the king of Babylon, a foreign country. He doesn't worship Israel's God. He writes this to all the nations and peoples of every language and all earth. He's trying to get this message out to everybody. This is like the tweet of the century. May you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. This is incredible. For he is the living God. He endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders. He, in heaven and on earth, he has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. Isn't that incredible? This is a foreign king singing the praises of Israel's God. This is incredible. And what's really incredible, this is not the first time that this has happened in the book of Daniel. As we watched the video, this happens before with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They get thrown in the, the pit, right? And they don't get burned up, and there's another guy in there, and, and, that, and God saves them. And Nebuchadnezzar writes a similar decree, and he sends it out to all of Babylon. Two times in this book, two foreign kings are singing the praises of Israel's God. And it's really ironic because they're doing the very thing that Israel was supposed to do, and they failed to do it. And they got exiled because of that. Over and over again, in, in the narrative of Israel, we see them struggling to trust God. Struggling to believe that God is the person that he says he is. But in this story of Daniel, we see Daniel Willing to lean into what God is doing. Trusting that God can be present even in exile. See, this story shows that, yeah, God may have exiled his people, but God's presence was very much in Babylon. God was working. God was with his people. God was shutting the mouths of lions and having foreign kings proclaim that he is the living God. What's more present than that? It's an incredible story. I started this morning off kind of asking two questions. Would the Israelites live for God in exile, and would they trust the story of God in their lives? And those questions are just as relevant for us today. See, as Christians, we live in exile. We are not in the promised land. Jesus has come. He's offered salvation. We are proclaiming the gospel to the world around us. But the fullness of God's kingdom is not quite here yet. We're in this like now and not yet thing. We have a citizenship that's in heaven. 
Philippians 3.20 says this, but our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. We are in exile, just like Daniel. It kind of changes the way we might be thinking about this story. So I'd ask us all today, are we willing to live for God in our exile? This story shows us that God's, pres- God's presence is very much was in Babylon with Daniel. He was in that fiery furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he was with all the other Israelites that we don't have stories about that were in exile. And a lot of them never left exile. And God was still with them. And if God was with them, then surely God is with us. And if you don't believe me, I hope you will, but if you don't believe me, all we have to look at is the bread and the wine that we celebrate communion with. Bread and juice. Sorry. Um, The broken body of Christ is proof that he is with us. He has given everything for us so that his presence could be with all of us all the time. See, the scriptures say that we are now the temple of the living God. God's spirit dwells in us if we believe in him, if we give our lives to him. God can be with us in our exile, which begs the question, are you willing, am I, are we as a church willing to trust the story of God in our lives? We are in this story that we've been talking about. This isn't just about other people. We're part of this story as well. And in a season season of confusion and craziness like we live in, are we willing to trust God? Are we willing to look back on these stories and say, God was with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and Daniel, and he's with me too. I want to encourage you, believe that. Trust that. Let's be people who strive to live continually, daily, for God. And let's trust that God just might do something bigger than we could ever imagine, just like he did in Babylon. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for your word. Your word is powerful. You give us these stories these glimpses into the ways that you've worked throughout history. When I think of the fact that you used foreign kings to proclaim your name, I'm just absolutely astonished, God. And I'm convicted of my own lack of faith. I'm convicted of the times when when I don't praise you the way that I should, where I don't live with the integrity that Daniel had. God, we live as exiles on this earth, but you are with us. You are with us in our exile. And so in that sense, we have everything we could ever need. God, this morning I pray for anybody who feels like you've abandoned them, God, who doesn't feel your presence with them. God, may they feel that. May they know that. May they believe that. May they read these stories in your scriptures and be reminded that you are indeed a God who never abandons, a God who never breaks his covenant. As we respond to you, God, now in praise, may we sing and declare something bigger and better than what a king of Babylon proclaimed. 
God, we have you here with us. We thank you for this time in your word. We thank you that you are always with your people. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.